Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to be back at Bellevue. Many of you have heard me speak before. You know I'm a pretty practical type guy. I've, uh, I've always been practical, and even when I was in uh, private practice, one of my first patients couldn't remember anything. I said, when did your problem start? He said, I can't remember. I said, how long have you had it? He said, I can't remember. I said, what have you done about it? He said, I, I can't remember. Doc, I can't remember anything. What do I do? I said, here's what you do. You pay me in advance. That's what you do. So uh, always been very practical. We're going to take a message today that's usually a message that I usually talk about relationships, but I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about a subject that's difficult in some ways to talk about because it is about the difficulties of life, the bad times. Now, we all have bad days. I mean, I'm not talking about that. You're just a bad day. You know we're going to have a bad day, don't you? When the bird's singing out your window is a buzzard, you know it's probably going to be a bad day. You get up and put your pants on backwards and they fit better. You probably, it's probably going to be a bad day. You know, you get up and you, your, wife, your, husband's, your wife says, good morning, Harold, and your name is Earl. You probably know it's going to be a bad day, you know. You, you get up and your waterbed leaks, and then you realize, I don't have a waterbed. It's going to be a bad day, you understand? Now, I'm not talking about just bad days. I'm talking about a bad life. I'm talking about when the world rolls over on you. You know, as a psychologist, a lot of people sitting on top of the world come to see me because the world is rolled over on top of them. It's the oldest book in the Bible. It's about the oldest problem in the Bible. When bad things happen to good people, it's the difficulties. It's when all of life goes bad. And it's about Satan and his ability to do bad things to us down here. It's what we call limited liberty. He he can't do anything he wants, but God allows him to do a lot of bad stuff. Uh, it's limited. You know, the Bible says he's like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion. He's, he's like one because he's limited in what he can do. I, I, uh, I turned the corner one time, and I was face to face. I mean, I couldn't believe it, a roaring lion. I mean, it, it wasn't four feet in front of me. I mean, and, and you would think I would be scared, but I, I'm going to tell you, I, I was not. I was cool. I was calm. I was definitely collected. I was looking at him like, I can, I can handle you. Why was I so cool and calm? Because I was at the zoo. <laughs> and there was a barrier about four inches of glass between, he couldn't do anything to me. Well, the Bible teaches that, that Satan can't do anything to you except sometimes God allows him to. And we see in this book, all of a sudden, a guy's life just is messed up. All of a sudden, everything bad happens, and we see hell's power with God's permission in the life of a man named Job. It starts off with Satan and God talking, communicating. They may, they may still talk today. They, may, they talked about Job. They, they may still talk about me and you. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but God is bragging on Job. He's saying, this is my man, Job. He's, a, he's, a, he's an upright man. You know, he's a great guy. He's, he's one of my guys. Bragging on him. And by the way, if you're a believer in Christ, God's always bragging on you. Why? Because when he sees you, he sees Jesus. That's why. 
And when bad things happen, see, Satan is a slanderer. He's always slandering God to you and you to God, especially when bad things happen, because then he's going to tell you you can't trust God. God wouldn't allow that to happen if he loves you. And you can't let the feeling of your condition overwhelm the truth of your position, and that is in Christ. When God sees you, he sees perfect righteousness. And so that slander is starting to take place as Satan and God communicate as God has bragged on him. But Satan says this in verse 11 of chapter 1. And I'm going to go through Job really quick. So you might just want to turn to chapter 1 and just hold your spot and check on it later to see if I did it right, okay? Verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Here's what happened. Satan says, he doesn't love, Job doesn't love you. You're his celestial bellhop. He, he's got all this good stuff. He's a member of the country club. He drives a Mercedes chariot. His kids are doing great. That's why he loves you. Let me mess with all that, and he will curse you to your face. And God says, you can do it. You can destroy everything about him. You can't destroy him. You cannot touch him. That's why we call it limited liberty. You cannot touch him, but you can destroy everything he has. And overnight, Job lost everything. Ten kids dead. All his wealth gone. Everything he has destroyed. A man of respect now is a man of ridicule. A man of prosperity is now a man of poverty. What would happen in your life? You wake up in the morning and you've lost everything. Job's response. I, I, I wished I could say this would be my response. I wished I could say this would be your response, but I don't know. Verse 21 of chapter 1, Job's response. And he said, Naked shall I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. What, what a response. I wish I could tell you I'd respond like that. I don't know if I would. How could he do that? How could he say that? Here's what Job says. I came into this world without anything. I'm leaving one day without anything. Anything I had down here, the gift of God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he's able to say that because he also says this later on. I know my Redeemer lives. And although I may be wiped out one day, and one day you're all going to be wiped out. Death runs in my family, think it runs in yours. You know, you're going to die. You know, uh, uh. one day you come in this world, no teeth, no hair, no bladder control. One day you're going to go out the same way. I promise you, you're going you're gonna to die. The day you're peacock, the next day you're feathers. It's over. You're going to die. All right? Job knew that. 
but he knew that death was not the end. He knew that his Redeemer lives. And he says, one day, I don't even understand it. This is the Old Testament. He says, one day, even though worms will eat this body, I'm going to see God because my Redeemer lives. Just think about it for a minute. How did you come in this world? <laughs> Without a stitch. <laughs> Without a stitch. And it's a shock. I mean, think about it. It, it doesn't get any better than that nine months before you're born. I mean, you just eat and float and float and eat. I mean, how good is that? For nine months, you don't have a worry in the world. Eat and float and float and eat. And then, boom, you're born. Man, you got to cry now every two hours to get something to eat. You throw up at both ends, you know. You can't walk for two years. You can't find a job. And why do you need a job? Because you already owe $64,000 on the federal debt. You know, uh, no wonder the baby's crying. Baby's crying. Everybody else is laughing. You ever notice that? Baby's coming. All the grandparents and father, goo goo, they making these funny faces. And the baby gets to know them and mom and dad and papa and Mimi and they get to school and then they become teenagers and drive the parents crazy and then then they get married and then and then they have kids and then they have teenagers and drive them crazy. Then they become grandparents and then they get old and then Life goes full circle. Always has, always will. I was little. My dad helped me go to the bathroom. My dad had cancer. I helped him go to the bathroom. Life goes full circle. Don't get arrogant about life. But like Job, it's the paradox of life. If you know your Redeemer lives, it's the paradox. When you came in crying as a baby, everybody else is laughing. But if you know Jesus, when you go out, you're going to be laughing while everybody else is crying. Why? Because your Redeemer lives. Well, Job lost everything. Satan is persistent. Satan says, well, God, he did pretty well with that test, but let him feel pain. Let me get a hold of him. And God said, okay, again, limited liberty. You can make him sick, you can make him in pain, but you can't kill him. And overnight, Job was in unbelievable pain. I, I'm a guy, and most guys that I know, they're when we get sick, we're just big babies. I mean, I, I, I first got married, I, you know, I got sick, and I thought my wife was going to, you know, take care of the little boy, get him ice cream, and, you know, his little boy's sick. And she said, take a shower and go to work. You'll be okay. You know, and I'm, what? You know, I mean, I wanted some sympathy. I, you know, I, I don't know if Job was like that or not, but think about it. Job has lost everything. The only person he has left is Mrs. Job. That's the only person he's got for encouragement. And he turns to her for encouragement. 
And what does she say? Well, you know what she said. It's classic. It's, it's everybody repeats it. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I mean, guys, how'd you like to be married to Mrs. Job? I mean, first sign of sickness, just curse God and die. Check your life insurance policy. You know, uh, What happened? What happened there? I'll tell you what happened there. Happens all the time. People get married, and they have kids, and they invest in their kids, and they quit investing in the marriage. I tell everybody around the country, life really begins when the kids leave home and the dog dies. That's pretty much when life really begins. I mean, you can do anything you want then. But only if you've invested in your marriage. We have now, it's an epidemic of gray divorce. Why? Because the kids leave home and the dog dies. And these people don't know each other. They don't have anything in common. They don't know what to do. And they get divorced. Best thing you can do for your kids, keep investing in your marriage. Gives them that security that they need. Well, Job's discouraged. He's been beaten down, and his friends show up. Now, let me just tell you about life. Life, you cannot live it by yourself. That's why the Bible says in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. There, there's some things in life you, you, can't, you can't handle by yourself. You're going to need some friends. My wife, uh, she usually likes to come to Bellevue, but she's with our grandkids, so uh, she's not here, but... My wife just loves snow skiing. From the very beginning, she just loves snow skiing. From the very beginning, I hated snow skiing. I mean, it was like a contact sport with no airbags. I mean, it was like, it was just hard. I mean, any sport that has an ambulance at the bottom of the hill, I mean, (laughs) do I really want to do this? You know, Uh, but man, she, she just, so every... Everybody that asked me to do a leadership ski, you know, retreat or a marriage ski retreat or a single ski retreat, she said, oh, we're going to do that. You booked that one. We're doing that. We're doing that one. You're doing it. I said, yeah, they got to give me some money to do that. You know, no, we'll just go. We'll we'll do it. You know, love to do those things. So I end up doing a lot of them. Now, if you want to go, let me just help you. I told you this would be practical. Let me just help you right here. If, If you ever go snow skiing, let me give you some help. Do these exercises to get ready. Take some gloves and soak them in water and then put them in a freezer for about 24 hours and then stick your hands in those frozen gloves and walk around all day with them, you know, like this. Uh, And that'll get you almost ready, but not quite ready. Then find some stairs like those stairs over there and run up those stairs and then come down without your legs. Just boom, 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 boom. And then run up there again and boom, boom, boom. And do that about four or five more times. And you'll almost be ready, but not exactly. Then find a wall and just run into the wall. Just run into the wall. And the wall will knock you down. And the wall will knock you down. And and when you're trying to get up, have somebody put ice down your back. Put ice down your back. And then give them lots of money. Oh, here's lots of money for this. Lots of money for that. As you can tell, I got an attitude problem with snow skiing. So 
Well, we did this ski retreat, you know, leadership conference of some kind, and I skied the first day, and it was just awful, awful. So the second day, I decided to sit in the hot tub. You know, I told my wife I'm going to spend some time with the Lord, you know. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm just like you. I spiritualize my psychological problems too. And so, I, uh, uh, so I, I'm in the hot tub and my wife comes by. She says, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking the day off. I'm sore. I'm going to sit in the hot tub. And she says, how can you be sore? You jog two miles a day. Day. I said, when I jog, I very rarely fall down or run into trees. <laughs> and I ran into trees and I fell down yesterday and I'm sore and I'm staying in this hot tub. And then she starts quoting my sermons. You know, I, I hate it when she quotes me like, you got to face it to fix it and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, those sermons are for other people. So then she just gives me that disgusted look. You know, there's a school that women go to that they teach them how to give disgusted looks. And so she gives me like disgusted look 23, and she goes off. Well, my buddies come by, and they're, uh, uh, they said, yeah, we heard you're having a bad time. I said, I'm having an awful time. They said, look, we want to help you today. You, you go with us. I said, no, you will kill me. I'm not going with you. And, and, but they convinced me. They said, look, we know you're, you're struggling. We'll stay on all the easy slopes. We'll work with you. We'll help you. We'll get you up when you fall. We'll just work with you. So it'll be all about you. So they convinced me. I said, okay. And so then you got to get on all that stuff. It takes about five layers and an hour to get it on. Then you got to go to the bathroom and pick all layers off. So about two hours later, I'm ready to go, you know. Uh, and they were good. They were helping me and working with me, and we stayed on those greens, you know, and those easy blues. And, 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 and there's a little, they got sweet names, you know, like Peter Rabbit Run and Peach Blossom Hill. You know, they're just sweet names, and we're just going on those easy slopes on Peter Rabbit Run and Peach Blossom Hill, and we make a turn, and we're on a black slope, and it's looking straight down. And there's nowhere else to go. And I am scared to death. I'm confessing sins I just thought about doing. You know, I thought of Drew. I confessed some of his sins. I mean, I, I, I'm surrendering to go to foreign missions. I'll go to Haiti. You know, I, I, I'm going to die right here. You know, scared to death. All of a sudden, a buddy of mine, expert skier, over to the right of me, a little far down the mountain, says, Charles, don't look down. Don't look down. Make your little S's and ski over to me. Don't look down. Just make your little S's. Come on, ski over to me. And I skied over to him. Then he went to the other side of the mountain and said, don't look down. Just come to the side. Come over here. Make your little S's. And we did that all the way down the mountain. Let me tell you about life. There's some hills. Can't get down by yourself. You're going to need some friends. You need some friends. Friends that can do these things for you. A sensitive tear. Somebody that you can just cry with. I got a buddy of mine who lost his wife and cancer. He'd been married over 40 years. And sometimes we'd just try to pray. we just end up crying. Just cry together. A sensitive tear. Uh, a listening ear. 
Somebody just listen to you sometime. Just, just get some stuff out. Truth without fear. Somebody will tell you the truth. Especially if you're in a high position, you need somebody. Truth rarely goes upward, I promise. It rarely goes upward. You need, you need somebody to tell you the truth. If you're in a high position, let it go upward so you can get the truth. So you need the truth without fear, sensitive tear. You need a good cheer. You know, somebody that say, man, you're going to make this. You're going to do this, you know. Uh, sometimes you need a kick in the rear, don't you? <laughs> Quit throwing a pity party. Let's, let's, go, let's go get this done. Some hills in life. You're going to need a friend. This friend of mine that lost his wife to cancer, his church gave him vacation, gave him four weeks off. He called and said, uh, could you help me plan my vacation? He said, I can't even remember having a vacation without Donna. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know where to go. I, I don't know who to, I don't know what. So Penny and I helped him plan his vacation. And we planned stops along the way where the, there'd be people there that he could be around. We, I flew to Wisconsin to be with him because we didn't have anybody in that area. So I flew up there and I was with him for, you know, four or five days. You got to have some friends to get you through these difficult times. Job's friends came to do ministry, and they left him in misery. You you, you won't believe what what Job's friends said. They they said things like this. They said, uh, they talked about his kids. They said, if your children have sinned against him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. They basically said to Job, Job, your kids got what they deserved. Instead of connecting with Job's feelings, they tried to convict him with their theology. See, Instead of standing in Job's shoes, they tried to stand in God's shoes. No. And Job's starting getting angry. They're starting getting angry at Job. And finally, he's had enough of them. He says, you're physicians of no value. let Let me help you here. Let's get practical. When somebody is going through a difficult time, touch is always better than talk. A trace of grace is better than a truckload of guilt. Many times you don't want to go see somebody because you don't know what to say. Go anyway. You just being there will be a comfort even though you don't know what to say. Also, understand that if you're going through something like this, that if you're not careful, you will engage in what we call over-solitude because you have what we all call reactive depression. When a tragedy happens in your life, your reaction is depression. It's normal. It happens to all of us. And you do not want to go do anything. You want to pull the cover over your head, and you don't want to move. And that over-solitude will just add to your depression. You've got to decide not to waller in it, but to wallop it. (laughs) How do you wallop it? Three things. Action. 
attitude and allies, okay? Isolation and inertia, in other words, being by yourself and not moving feeds the grief. So you have to force yourself into moving activity. You have to force yourself to change your attitude in other words, I'm going to wallop this instead of waller in it, and that takes a lot of effort. And then you have to have an ally to help you, and this ally will help you not by doing everything you're supposed to do and let you stay in the bed, all right? It's by being with you and helping you do the things you have to do so you can eventually do them again by yourself, but giving you that support you need as you get through the grief. And remember... It's not platitudes that helps people. It's something practical. When, when, I lost, when we lost our grandson, the lady that gave us the most comfort was the lady that came to our house. She said, I will come to your house every day from 9 to 5, and I will answer the phone, and I will do it for two weeks. I'll bring my own lunch. And I will tell the story of what happened to your grandson. I know you don't want to repeat that story over and over. And I will tell the story, and I will take their name and number and address if you want to send them a note or a card or contact them later. That was such a comfort to us. Do something practical with the person. And if you are in a difficult situation and you have that reactive depression that is normal, remember things like this. Do not get off the train when you're in the tunnel. What that means is don't make any major decisions when you're in that state of mind. You know, I've worked with many people who want to quit their job, they want to do this. And I said, no, we get through the darkness first. And then we see some light, we start to make those kind of decisions. But you, you don't do it now in, in terms of that. Job's friends were not the kind of friends that he needed. Decide that when people go through difficulty, you are going to be the kind of friend that leads people back to where God would have them to come. And let me just say one more thing. When tragedy happens, you do not get over it. All right? You never get over grief. You do not put it behind you you learn to live with it. It's always with you. It's always a part of you. But you allow it to learn from and not to feed your dysfunction as you progress through that grief and be that person that God had in mind when he created you. Well, Job is upset with his friends. He can't get any encouragement. He can't get any help. So finally, he says this, chapter 13, my eyes seen all this. My ears heard all this. I know what you know. I'm not in fear to you. I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. As you, you whitewashed with lies, you're worthless physicians, he calls them. And then I love this line in verse 5. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. You know what that means? If only you had enough sense to shut up. 
<laughs> and, you, and you really want to tell somebody that sometime, you know. If only you had enough sense to shut up, he says. You know, you're, you're talking about things you don't know about. And he says this, I want to argue with God. Let me just get a show of hands here. Let's just do individual therapy. How many of you ever wanted to argue with God? Just raise your hand. The rest of you, liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) And by the way, don't you wish liar, liar, pants on fire was really true? I I mean, wouldn't that make those political ads a lot more fun? You know? Uh, (laughs) He says, I want to argue with God. And guess what? There's times in our life we all do. We all want to argue with God. We want to tell God what to do. That's in our Adam suit. That's part of who we are. I mean, listen to your prayers. God do this, and God heal this, God bless this, and of course, in Jesus' name, amen. We all want to argue with God. We all resent that authority. We want to be in charge. There was this general, one Saturday, he was sitting out under his tree by a pool, and he got to thinking that he had ordered an inventory at a base about a month earlier and hadn't, hadn't heard a word. So he thought, well, I'm just going to give it a shot. I'm going to call. I know it's a Saturday. Maybe nobody's down there, but I'm going to call down there and see what's going on. So he calls down to the base, and some private doing Saturday afternoon duty answers the phone, and he didn't have a clue what's going on, but he's, he's kind of one of those fast-talking guys. You know, he just, so the general said, uh, there's an inventory that's going on down there, isn't there? And the private said, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we got an inventory going on. He said, well, it, how's it going? He said, oh, it's going great. It's going great. He said, well, what are you finding out? He said, oh, man, it's, we, we got 85 helicopters. We got 103 of this. We got 50. Man, he's just on a roll. He's just making up numbers. He doesn't know. He's making up much stuff. And he's on such a roll at the end, he finally said, and we got five Cadillacs for those fat generals to ride around in. Well, the general on the other end you know, kind of got quiet, and then he said, uh, young man, do you know who you're talking to? He said, well, no. He said, this is General Edgar Brown. Well, it got quiet on the private's end, of course, but then he was a quick-thinking private, so he said, well, well, general, do you know who you're talking to? He said, well, no. He said, good, goodbye, fatty, and hung up the phone. <laughs> Now, let me tell you why psychologically you think that's funny. Because you resent authority as much as I do. And we really like it when authority gets the bad rap, don't we? My friend, God's in charge. You're not. And Job's going to find that out. Because God says, I'm going to show up, Job. And God shows up. (laughs) He says... uh, Okay, Job, chapter 38. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. God says, Job, I'm not answering your questions. You're answering mine. And let's start with creation. 
He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I sunk the bases? In other words, where were you when I invented gravity? Do you understand gravity, Job? Do you understand why you jump up, you come back down, you don't just fly off into space? I'm pretty proud of gravity. Job, do you understand how I did that? Question after question after question. He says things like this, Job, I put wisdom in the inward parts. One day, Job, they're going to talk about microprocessing and computers, and I put a computer inside your head. How did I do that, Job? Question after question after question. He even had a sense of humor. He, God, Job, do you have an arm like God? Can you do thunder? I mean, people kind of expect it. You hear it last night? Thunder. You know, Job, do you have, how's your thunder doing? Can you do that? And Job is thinking, no, I don't do thunder well. <laughs> Job is starting to think, I don't do anything well. I used to be a college professor, and I'd tell the students, if you have a really hard test, answer the ones you know. You know, just skip some and find something you know to give you some confidence. Well, Job's got a 70-question test, and he knows nothing. <laughs> God might have said it like this. Job, one day they're going to have TV stations called Discovery and National Geographic, and it's going to be about what I created before you showed up. <laughs> and then God says this. Job, do you want to run the world? Do you want to be right and me be wrong? And then he brings up some animals and says, I created all these animals, and you're afraid of those animals. Why don't you respect me? And all of a sudden, Job doesn't know what to do. Matter of fact, when he finally responds, he just says this. I'll paraphrase. I am nothing. I know nothing. I've said too much already. And then he makes the final response. He says this in chapter 42. Job says, who is this that cancels without knowledge? In other words, why am I talking when I know nothing? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Verse 5, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. When Job prayed for his friends, the Bible says God gave him twice as much as he had before. He gave him the same amount of kids because he didn't lose his kids. God had kept them in heaven. But he gave him ten more kids. Now, did Job know any more about his problem? No. Did he understand Satan was messing with him? No. He never understood any of it. And you'll never understand any of it either. But he changed his mind about it all when God showed up and he knew that God loved him. And he knew that his Redeemer did live. And the only way Job got through the rest of his life, and the only way you'll get through life is that when you think of the 
go through the bad times, you think of the end times. Affliction down here is lasting, but it is not everlasting. Satan's last shot is death. It's his best shot, but it's his last shot. And Jesus conquered death. Your Redeemer lives. The cross was the worst thing anybody can do to somebody. It became the best thing for everybody. Why? Because your Redeemer lives. And once you understand that, you become like Job. Yes, you're going to have tribulation. But Jesus says, be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. My daughter Casey, she's about four. Cut her chin on a coffee table, somewhat like that corner right there. Just fell and hit it. And by the time I got home, you know how kids are. It wasn't hurting anymore. She was playing, running around. I looked at that chin, and it was a pretty good cut. I call a doctor friend of mine, and I tell him it's about, it's about a half an inch long. He said, well, we got to sew it up. It's going to scar. Bring her down to the emergency room. I'll sew it up. You ever tried to reason with a four-year-old? Kind of right up there with leprosy and root canals. You know, I... I I tried to tell her we got to go get this thing fixed. And she kept saying, well, Dad, it doesn't hurt anymore. Will it hurt if we go to the hospital? And I had to say, well, yes, it will. Well, why hurt it again? It doesn't make any sense. So finally, I just had to get on my knee and look her in the eye and say, Casey, you know your daddy loves you, don't you? Yes, sir. You know I wouldn't make you do anything that wasn't absolutely necessary, don't you? Yes, sir. Well, honey, your chin's not going to be like it ought to be unless we sew it up. You're going to have to trust your dad, and we have to go to the hospital. Yes, sir. Tears in her eyes. Being a psychologist, I want to make it easy as possible. So I said, now, after it's all over, we go to Walmart and get you a prize. And she said, that'd be good. We pull in the hospital parking lot. And she said, Dad, I got a better idea. Let's go to Walmart first. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're four or 80. We all want the prize before the pain, don't we? Doesn't work that way. I said, honey, doesn't work that way. We got to go in here first. I went in there and she grabbed a hold of my hand on the way in and said, dad, will you hold on my hand and don't let go? I said, I won't let go. We got in there and I had a hold of that hand and they came with this little papoose. I call it a straight jacket because that's kind of where I used to work, but it's kind of so they couldn't hit the needle, you know, they put their hands down. So I, she's motioning down, and I'm looking down, and she wants me to grab hold of her foot. And, and I did. You know, I felt kind of weird, big guy holding a little girl's foot, but that's what she wanted, and that's what I did. And if you've ever been there, it, it's pretty bad. She cried, I cried, the doctor cried. It was just bad. I started to leave, and I thought she'll never have anything to do with me again after this. I felt that little hand in my hand. She said, Daddy, I love you. <laughs> Thanks for holding on to me. It was rough in there. And I thought, that's God. He said it's going to get rough down here, but I'm not letting go. You see, Jesus, when he came back from the cross, still had the scars. I always wondered about that. If he had a glorified body, why would he have scars? Scars are for me. Scars are for you. God wanted you to know that no matter what happens, even death itself, Satan's best shot, no matter what happens, I never let go. And Jesus has the scars to prove it.
Bad times will come. If this message isn't for you today, wait. It, it will be for you. Nobody lives happily ever after. And then you have a choice. You can focus on your circumstances and have a pity party. Or you can focus on the character of God and praise him. There'll be many times in your life when you cannot celebrate your life, but you can celebrate the Lord. And that's the difference between pity and praise. The songwriter put it this way. When you're up against the struggles that shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes and you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fears, don't let the faith you're standing in disappear. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise him. Praise the Lord. Now, Satan, he's a liar. He wants to make you think you're a pauper when he knows himself. You're children of the king. So lift up the mighty shield of faith. The battle must be won. Jesus Christ is risen. The work's already done. Praise the Lord. Those chains that seem to bind you will drop powerless behind you when you praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Lord, thank you that you're such a good God. Lord, during this hymn of invitation, there may be some people that just need to come to your altar and say, Lord, I'm going from pity to praise. I, I'm going I'm to decide to do some action. I'm going to change my attitude, and I'm going to get some allies and some friends, and I'm going to wallop this thing instead of wallowing in it. Maybe there's someone here that's never trusted you as Savior. The day you would give them the faith to believe and help them understand that their Redeemer lives and they need Him to take Satan's best shot. Others may have needs I don't know about, but I know no one ever regrets just coming to this altar and praising you. Thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.